Thank you, choir. What a wonderful, wonderful song to be reminded of a precious truth. That one of the reasons we gather as a church is because we want everyone to acknowledge the beauty of who Christ is. One of the things that's kind of strange for us is it's, it's easy for us to get really excited. Some of you are second coming junkies. Like you, you love to talk about prophecy. And, and that's a good thing. But listen, the second coming is not good news for people who don't know about his first coming. And so as we sing about the joy of every knee bowing finally, there will be some, that, there will be some souls that need to be conquered, that don't bow out of worship. And in, perhaps the, the way we can best demonstrate our joy and anticipation about the second coming is to be serious about the proclamation of his first coming. And so I have the opportunity this morning to bring you greetings from six of our members who are halfway around the world. It is um, nine, eight, it is 8 o'clock at night in India, and they made it just fine. Uh, perhaps the biggest obstacle they had was the Charlotte Airport, who wanted to charge us $600 for extra baggage. And so I pulled everyone together, and I said, hey, listen. If this is the most serious obstacle that you face this entire mission trip, you are blessed. And so uh, they got on the plane just in the nick of time, and uh, Chloe texted me, and she said, Dad, I have stayed up as long as I possibly could. I am going to bed. And so uh, they're, they're doing good. They have already had a full day of worship, uh, the opportunity to worship with a couple house churches and to meet a bunch of missionaries in India. And so they're doing great, and it's not lost on me. That as we gather this morning, last week we started a new section in Matthew's gospel. If I asked you, um, what kind of preacher was Jesus? You would tell he's wonderful. I said, all right, tell me a sermon that he's preached. What would you say? The Sermon on the Mount. The most popular sermon that he's preached. But in Matthew's gospel, Jesus preaches five lengthy sermons, and we don't know the other four. In Matthew 10, Jesus preaches his Sermon on Mission. And we've had the opportunity over the last two weeks to to look at that. Last week, in a nutshell, Jesus commissioned his disciples. He apostolized them. He deputized them to go out in his name and to multiply his mission. Jesus was one man. Now he had 12 that were going out. And basically, last week's sermon was Jesus' travel instructions. He told them what to take. He told them not what to take. He told them where to go. He told them how to do what they were supposed to do. He even told them where to lodge. Find a person of peace and you stay with them. He even commissioned his disciples to do as he had done, to preach and to manifest his power through healings. And he got into nitty-gritty details about how they were to do this. And at the conclusion of last week's sermon, we saw a, a little warning that Jesus gave. He said, hey, listen, you're preaching a new message. And you're, you're manifesting this power that is showing that, you're from, that I am from God. You just need to be aware that not everyone is really going to be excited about your message. There are going to be a couple cities that you go to that they're not going to welcome you. And they're not going to be willing to listen to you. We remember that... Jesus said, uh, not listening to his apostles is a serious sin indeed. He said that 
people who refused to listen to his apostles that were sent to them will be judged more harshly than the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what did they do? What what did the cities do that was so worthy of judgment? Were they hostile? Were they angry? Did they come after them with their plowshares and their... No. They just didn't welcome them. They just weren't willing to listen. They were lazy in their attitude. However, this morning, as Jesus continues his sermon in Matthew 10, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 25, we see that Jesus, because he is God, can look further than the immediate mission to say, hey, listen, right now you might only be dealing with a cool reception. There's greater trouble to come. And so if last week Jesus' instruction to his disciples was his travel sermon, this week, in our passage that we look at, Jesus warns his disciples of serious trouble. Jesus is giving his travel instructions and he concludes that in verse 16 with something that sounds like a rather enigmatic statement. He says this, Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, so therefore be as shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. Sheep among wolves? We're supposed to be as cunning as a snake, but as pure and as harmless as a dove? What in the world is going on? There's got to be something more than just not having the red carpet and the welcome committee standing here for us. Jesus is preparing his disciples for an increasingly hostile and harmful opposition. While what they face in the immediate future is relatively light. Jesus is looking beyond his resurrection to where the opposition gets bloody. It will intensify. And up to verse 16, Jesus has been looking at short-term implications. But beginning in verse 17... He he turns his gaze to the experience of the early church and to all who faithfully follow him. So look with me at verses 17, 18, and then 21. He says in verse 16, Look, I'm sending him out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves. Because people will hand you over to Sanhedrin's. And flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me. To bear witness to them and to the nations. Verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. Children will even rise up against their parents. And have them be put to death. The first part of verse 22. You will be hated by everyone, because of my name. To begin with, Jesus tells his disciples to be mindful of impending trouble. He starts off in verse 17 with an important verb. He says, uh, be aware, be wary, be warned, pay attention, watch out for. He says, guys, listen, right now, things may be cool, but the heat will turn up incredibly. 
and the disciples will be liable to get into trouble easily. So he says, beware of men. Don't naively trust people. Don't cause uh, the men of the world to get angry with you for no cause. Watch out for traps. Don't give them a reason to bring charges against you. And as we look at this passage, these verses that we've read, we see that the disciples are in danger on a variety of fronts. The danger is all around them. What do we see in verse 17? It says essentially that the religious authorities will threaten the disciples. Did you see it? It said, people will hand you over to the courts. Uh, My translation says the Sanhedrins. And they will flog you in their synagogues. Watch out. This context is specifically religious. Uh, The early Christians... uh, separated slowly from the Jewish nation. As a matter of fact, in the early church, there was some debate over whether you needed to become a Jew before you could even become a Christian. Should a Gentile who wants to convert have to be circumcised and pay attention to the Jewish law before they could graduate to the higher teachings of Christianity? No. But we see that, uh, in essence, the Jewish people were not fond of the Christian message. This is a clear Jewish message context. You will be brought to the religious courts, you will be brought to the religious gathering places, and you will be punished because you're not a good Jew anymore. Verse 18, it's not just religious persecution that they'll face. Verse 18 said, you will even be brought before who? Governors and kings. Now I thought last week when Jesus gave his travel instructions, he said, "Um, don't go outside of the house of Israel. And here just a few verses later, what's he saying? You will be brought before kings and governors for the purpose of, the last part of verse 18, for the purpose of bearing witness to them and to the nations. It's very clear that while Jesus limited explicitly the disciples' mission to the nation of Israel, that there were implications that the gospel message was not going to be geographically limited. It was going to go to the ends of the earth. And so what this is saying is when that step happens, the state will intimidate disciples. You've heard the news. I mean, when the world disagrees with the stance that we take, take the city of Houston here just recently where the, uh, the mayor of Houston had subpoenaed all Christian sermons, articles, emails that had anything to do with issues of sexuality. Completely illegal. A violation of the separation of church and state. Quickly backed off. But what was it? An intimidation measure to get Christians to toe the line that the culture says is important. Now, all of these things are clearly seen in the book of Acts, and Jesus just here predicts them before they happen. Who had to stand before kings and governors? Well, Jesus did. He stood before Pilate. He stood before Agrippa. Paul did. He stood before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa II. Peter and John did. They stood before the Jewish leaders and they had to be commanded not to preach in Jesus' name. And they said, you know, I'm afraid we just can't do that. Because we we cannot obey a human authority because a heavenly authority has already commanded us. And we cannot supersede the command of of a superior officer for someone who is insubordinate. It's interesting. Certainly for uh, a Jew... 
which the Jewish nation would have been considered kind of a backwards and uneducated nation because they were far from Rome. Rome is where the influential people were. Rome is where the learned were. Rome is where the power was. Confronting Roman authorities would have been a terrifying thing to the Jews. They're not familiar with the Roman legal system. They're familiar with the Jewish legal system, but not the Roman. And so this whole thing of being brought before kings and nations and governors is gloriously fulfilled all throughout the history of the book of Acts. The thing that perhaps is most disturbing here, and I think one of the things that's hardest for us to understand in our context, is that as if pressure from the synagogue and the state wasn't enough, did you hear what else the passage said? The persecution and the trouble doesn't just come from religious authorities or state slash secular authorities. Verse 21, it says that betrayal of the disciples will happen within their families. Verse 21, brother will betray brother to death. And a father will betray his child to death. Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. You'll be hated by everyone because of my name. Jesus is saying something very important here. He says that trouble is the habitat in which Christians live. What do you think about that? I mean, we're a Christian nation, aren't we? I say with a smile on my face, are we really? Maybe a nation that had a lot of Christians that founded it, maybe based upon Christian principles, We're nowhere near that in this day and age. I've not grown up in a Christian country. Some of you that are older than I uh, perhaps did, or at least in a country that was more Christianized than it is now. But Jesus is saying that trouble is the habitat of Christians. And he doesn't want us surprised when it comes. It's very interesting in in the history of the early church. One of the reasons Christians were hated so universally is they were bad for business. They were bad for business. You know why? Because um, if you were a Christian slave owner and your slave became a Christian, they're now a brother or a sister in Christ. If you ran a brothel and one of the women that you oppressed becomes a Christian and now she has a new family that tried to save her from that calling, you've just lost an employee. You remember Paul preaching in Greece And all of the metal workers got upset because as people turned to Christianity, nobody bought the little idol statues that they made anymore, so they caused a riot. Christians were bad for business and they were hated because they did the right thing. There was nothing unethical. There was nothing immoral. The world will hate you, Jesus says, because of my name. So if we're to be mindful of trouble, what does that mean? In a day and age where even we sense something slipping in our society, where there is less and less true tolerance and freedom of religion, does that mean that we should be cynically suspicious of everyone? That's a really hard context to be a soul winner when you're suspicious of everyone. So on the one hand, we've got to find this balance. We can't be cynical and suspicious of everyone, but we cannot have boundless confidence 
in mankind either. And we've got to find that balance where you may say something to someone in your workplace and they may report you for harassment. I, I had a friend who worked for uh, a large insurance company. And on his screensaver on his computer, he had a Bible verse. And he was reported um, and punished because that was intolerable. It happens. I hear of other people who have, simply have a Bible sitting on their desk at work. And people complain about it. You may say something and it may get you in trouble. Will you be quiet? You can't. The second thing Jesus says is he tells his disciples, in spite of all of this, not to be anxious because of their condition. He says, don't worry. Don't be anxious because of these things. Look at verses 19 and 20. We read verses 17, 18, and 21, and we skipped over verses 19 and 20. Right in the middle of all that, what does it say? He says, when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour, because you are not speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. What a wonderful promise. Some of you uh, become blabbering fools when you get pulled over by a police officer. What's the problem, sir? You know, there's an intimidation factor when a man of the law or when an attorney says, hey, I've got some questions, or the IRS calls and says, hey, we want to examine your, your um, tax statement. The eyes get big, yes, sir. And we have to listen to our master carefully at this point. When we find ourselves in trouble, if we've not done anything immoral, are questionable, the truth is you're probably right where he wants you to be. Is that a happy word? That when you're in trouble, that that may be exactly where he wants you to be. Why? Well, there's a variety of reasons. The first is because one of the reasons for our persecution is for the purpose of gospel witness. He tells the people, you're going to be dragged before kings and governors. For the purpose of testifying, giving a witness to uh, them and to the nations. I love this quote. It says, in countries today where Christianity is outlawed, more people learn about the gospel in the courtroom than on the street. You go to um, Iran, where people are jailed because of their faith. And the typical person on the street has no idea who Jesus Christ is or what the gospel is. But when they hear all of the news, when they tune in and they hear how the world is responding to these pastors that are being imprisoned, they begin to hear bits and pieces, shades of the gospel that the country has oppressed them from hearing. And so perhaps in your persecution, you have the opportunity to proclaim the truth is that bad things happening to us can be more effective for gospel mission than peaceful circumstance. Bad things happening to us can be more effective for gospel mission than peaceful circumstances. Why? Because what you're willing to suffer for says a lot about who you are. If you're willing to fight for your rights, not fight for your Savior, 
Somebody knows everything about you that they need to know. But you're more concerned about your comfort and your convenience than you are your Christianity. How we respond in one bad episode may mean more for gospel witness than every good thing that has happened to us combined. When a world who doesn't understand your affections sees you suffer righteously, they have to ask the question, what is it that makes this person tick? And it may be that one episode of suffering, of evil that you have to endure may mean more for the purpose of gospel witness than all of the good things that have, added to, that have happened to you added together. So one of the reasons for the suffering is for gospel witness. But second, it's a terrible truth. But in difficulty, we can know more about the ministry of God. People say in the midst of adversity and suffering that God is such a sweet Savior. We're told explicitly here that when we get called before people, he says, don't worry. Why? Because you're not the one speaking. God's spirit will speak through you. God shows up. When you put your neck on the line, God shows up. You remember the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Told to bow whenever the trumpets played. And they say, you know what? We're not going to do it. Because our God is able to save us. And even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship your statue. We're not going to do it. Whether he saves us or not, we're going to be faithful in what happens. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. And the king thought he threw three in and he saw four in the fire. And when he calls them out, I don't know if you've ever been to a barbecue. I don't know if you've ever been to a bonfire, but he says when they got out, they didn't even smell like smoke. How in the world did that happen? I roast marshmallows in the back of my yard. I smell like smoke for three days. They come out of this fire that's been heated seven times, and they come out because we know more about God when we go through suffering. We need not fear our ability to respond to professional interrogators. Because the God who made our mouth will speak through us. And they may have the experience and they may have the education. And it doesn't stack up to the creator who made us. He'll speak through us. God, through his spirit, will help us respond in the right way as a witness. So here's a question for you. If the spirit's role, the role of the Holy Spirit is Baptist. We don't need to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Part of the Trinity. He's a friend. He's a good guy. But if the spirit's whole role is to help in difficulty for the purpose of gospel proclamation. Perhaps the reason Baptists are afraid of the Holy Spirit is they've never experienced Him. If you're not proclaiming the gospel, the Holy Spirit's not a genie in the lamp to grant you your three wishes. The Spirit's role is to help the proclamation of the gospel and to hold up God's servants in the midst of difficulty. And if that's His primary role... Have you truly experienced the Spirit of God? Perhaps you need to venture something. Perhaps you need to risk something. Because God will never leave you alone in the midst of the risk. He sends His Spirit to aid and to guide. Third, lastly, Jesus tells His disciples to endure whatever persecutions may come. Verses 22 through 25. Jesus says, You will be hated by everyone 
because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. When they persecute you in one town, escape to another, for I assure you, you will not have covered the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. But if they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. What in the world does Jesus mean when he says hated by all? Hated by all? Let me help you here just a little bit. Of all the people in the world, are there at least a few out there who are Christians who love God? Yes. So when he says all, he doesn't mean every single human being on the face of the planet without exception. Because there are Christians out there. He's saying all the world He's saying not all without exception. There are some believers, but all without distinction. People from every kind of race, people of every kind of color, people of every kind of creed, every kind of nationality will hate you. All without distinction. Not all without exception. The point that he's making is only slightly better. He's saying there's going to be widespread hostility. As a matter of fact, the only people who won't hate you are your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's interesting. Sometimes the church does this. We do good, good deeds and we meet needs. And we're celebrated. Man, appreciate those people at Northside Baptist Church. The problem is you do those same things in Jesus' name. And the world will have a very different reaction. Hey, uh, can you feed the hungry without talking about Jesus? Because that's really what we want. We don't want. We don't want Jesus. We want a meal. Can you help the destitute without preaching to them? It's interesting. We do the same things, but we do them in Jesus' name. And they earn us scorn or hatred. And it seems to, to me that from this passage, that the danger that we're in is in direct proportion to the depth of our relationship with Christ. I got, I got really good news for some people this morning. If you are a lazy, half-hearted, lukewarm believer, I have great news for you this morning. You're not going to face any trouble. So on your bulletin, that little tear-off, if that's you, you want to be that person, you want to have the benefits of Christianity without any of the trouble, write your name down. Okay, we got a deacon's meeting tonight. We can put you on a special list. People who don't care to have a deep relationship with Christ never earn the world's hostility. Why? Because they're not a threat. When we deepen our hearts, want to know Christ in the power, the fellowship of his sufferings, in the power of his resurrection, we can be assured that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience trouble. And in spite of all the world's hatred, in spite of all of the animosity, Jesus says simply, put up with it. Endure. Be brave, not foolish. Remember, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Be brave. 
trouble's going to come, that doesn't mean you go seek it out. You don't run to it. And he says, as a matter of fact, when you encounter persecution, it's okay to leave. He says, when they persecute you in one city, go. Flee to another. Escape to another. He's not saying, hey, listen, you need to get killed. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, waste your talents and gospel proclamation on a people who don't want to listen. If they don't want to listen, go, because maybe the next town does. So he gives common sense answers here. Don't waste talents on the unreceptive. Don't throw pearls before swine. But how can he, in light of all of this opposition, tell us to endure so tritely? Doesn't he care? Well, he does. And that's why he tells us to endure. He tells us that the time is urgent. You don't have time to waste. If they don't receive you, go. Move on. This Jewish mission, this limited mission that Jesus gave them was only for a certain amount of time. It will not last long. He says, you will not have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, there's a lot of confusion about what that means. Did Jesus expect for his second coming to happen before this mission of the disciples got completed? Well, that's not a satisfactory answer, is it? Because then, then, then Jesus kind of looks like he's ignorant. <clears throat> Some people think it's um, Jesus talking about physically catching up with him. He goes, hey, y'all are going out, and I'm going to give you a two days head start, and then I'm coming. That's not what it means. Some people think it's Pentecost, the second coming of Christ. But I think he's got Matthew 28 in mind. Remember Matthew 28? You see, the Great Commission is the beginning of his return. You might not have thought about this before. The Great Commission is the, if, if this is his return, the Great Commission is the beginning and the second coming is the return. He says, all authority... He's been teaching with authority. He's been healing with authority. He's been demonstrating authority. But when he is resurrected, he can now say, I have been vindicated. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. When we got done with the words, do you remember what happened? He rose up into the clouds, into heaven. And angels came down and said, men, why are you standing here? What happens when Jesus comes back? From the clouds, attended with angels. He bookends with this heavenly ascension with angels and clouds and coming back on the clouds with glory and with his angels. It bookends the same thing. It's the same image. It's, it's like you know, from a scene shift in a movie. You want to make sure everything in the first scene is in the second scene, you know. So if you're wearing a blue shirt in the first scene, you cut to the second scene, you want to have the same shirt on? He's saying, I want you to understand, the time is short. Because this Jewish mission is not going to last long. When I get resurrected, you may not have made it through all the cities of Israel, and then you're going to go. And the persecution is going to be more significant. People are going to be after you. I think one of the points here, when he says about the timing being urgent, is something else that's helpful for us. It's where, it's where our treasure is. Because where Christ is truly treasured, the trouble is not so troublesome. <clears throat> I hear, whenever a baby is born, 
and you, you go to the hospital and you visit that family with that newborn child, I hear women share their war stories. How long were you in labor? Six hours? Huh, 18. Was it worth it? I don't know any mother who looks at their child and says, you know, six hours, 18, 36, two years, not worth it. Because where something is treasured, the trouble is just something you've got to go through. The person who aspires to be um, at the top of their game athletically doesn't complain about their workouts. They brag about them. Man, I worked out till I threw up. Really? You need to help. Moderation, my friend. What's the point? Where something is treasured, the trouble is not so troublesome. The young man who's in love but broke doesn't complain about eating rice and beans so he can buy that engagement ring. Is what you treasure, you go through the trouble. Perhaps the problem is we're not willing to suffer because we don't truly treasure. To complain about suffering on the, for the sake of Jesus will truly belie a lack of love for Jesus. And Jesus also says, listen, not only is the time urgent, not only does suffering bring to the surface what you truly treasure, but he says in verses 24 and 25, friends, the goal is to be like me. The goal of our lives is to be like Christ. And I, I read this and I go, I go, why is there so much bad stuff? This message, this sermon that Jesus is preaching is supposed to excite us about mission, but there's no prediction of success. There's no stories of life change. There's no interviews on TV. There's no transformation. Instead, what does he give us? Suffering, betrayal, trials, and beatings. And I think his point here is that there's a vast difference between significance and success as the world defines it. We can be significant whether the world knows our name or not. We are significant because we are faithful to becoming like Christ in our attitudes, but also in our suffering. Were the disciples successful? Only by some definitions. Eleven of the twelve died a martyr's death. They were successful because they were faithful to their Savior. They died what looked like vain deaths. And we must constantly beware the siren call of success. And instead of being successful in the world's eyes, aim for simply being like our master. And the more he and his disciples did good works, the more they sank into a pit of contempt. And so Jesus says, you will be hated by everyone. One of the few verses that is attested in all four of the Gospels. So Jesus is certain about his followers' persecution because of his own troubles. He says that. He said, listen, I've been called satanic. I've been called a fanatic. I've been called a liberal. I've been called a heretic. Every possible disqualifying name in the spiritual dictionary, I have been called that. And if they call me that, you can be sure that you will be called that as too. Yet success as the world defines it is not the criterion for discipleship. Rather, it is to be like Jesus. To stick to what we know is right, no matter how difficult. 
And I think it's interesting here because Jesus said it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Jesus says quite simply, it's the steadfast and not the spectacular who are saved. I don't have the capacity to be spectacular. I can be steadfast. God can help me to be steadfast. And he can help you. So friends, this morning, where's your treasure? Because the more you treasure, the deeper that treasure is, the more trouble you'll be willing to go through. So let's be troublemakers. Let's live for Jesus boldly. Because there's nothing that people can do that make it worth being unfaithful to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for this word. God, listen, it's not a word that in one sense I was really looking forward to preaching. I mean, talking about trouble. We're, we're, as Americans, we're conditioned to do everything we can do to avoid trouble. And so God, we need to hear this in its, all of its vim and vigor. That those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That as the master was um, disdained and mocked, that God, we shouldn't expect to see anything different. So God, help us this morning in our hearts to set you aside as Lord. Help us to be serious. But not being, you're not calling us to be bold jerks in how we share the gospel. But you're telling us to have a holy boldness to not be intimidated and painted into a corner. But to gladly allow your love and your grace and your mercy to shine through in a world that has no idea what those virtues are. So God, help us to live for you in Jesus' name.